Welcome, everybody. It's time for another Hollywood Godfather podcast. And today we have a special treat for you because we felt this is a three-year anniversary. We have so many special friends that we just want to acknowledge, just in case you didn't hear all the episodes. We picked out a dozen or so of the highlights, and you can peruse our library that's up all the time and hear the whole interviews with them. Great names. You'll be listening to them as we go down the list. Let's start. Oh, this guy I love, Patrick Bed David. I just left him. I just did 12 more 20 minutes, which will be coming on his Hollywood, I mean, his Valuetainment Network. So uh, the first one is Patrick Bed David, who's been very generous to us when we first started out. And over three months, he got 51 million hits. And before we start our episode, Pat, welcome, my co-writer, co-host. Happy to be here, buddy. Megan Horan. Imagine, Megan, we Ooh, met we met in <laughs> Naples, Florida, and you're still together three years later. With yeah. your family. We got to clarify that. Not alone. With yeah. your and, yep, we're here. And we have our engineer, who's been a friend of mine and bailing me out for the last 20 years and everything I've tried technically. <laughs> Mike, what a pleasure to have you, man. Hey, XM good to be here. LA, the best. So who's up first? Patrick Bed-David, one of our first interviews when we first started. Megan, you want to go? Let's listen to what he was saying, first of all. Yeah, let's yeah. take a listen. That person's going straight to the top. Yeah, think, about, think about it with some of these guys 40 years ago where they're on camera, behind closed doors, people that you and I don't know about. They said, Donald Trump's going to be the president one day. I, I had a girl that came right here from Cambridge Analytica. Okay, you guys know Cambridge Analytica. Sure. So yeah. the, the guys that really, the whole campaign, everything. She hates Trump. She comes over here. She says to me, she's 14 years old. She's a phenom. She's a whistleblower, but she's a phenom. Mm -hmm. Well, she's going places. And her mom and dad are, you know, one of them's working at military intelligence, pretty connected people. She's going to private school and she knows she's eventually going to be at politics. She goes to a city because she's out of a, a, a Chicago. I think it's Lincoln Park or some city like that. And there's a speech being given by a guy in 2002, 2003. She goes, listen to this guy speak. There's only 29 people in the room. She's one of the 29 at 14 years old. The guy that spoke was a guy named Barack Obama. She said, I watch him saying this guy's going to be the president one day. Wow. That's amazing. I mean. Well, I, I, I can tell you what I got out of that. He, hmm. he, he sounds more like a gangster than you do, Johnny. Who, Patrick <laughs> Ben David? Yeah. <laughs> he's got the tone and the. No, that's yeah, wild. He's, he's yeah. got the attitude, man. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's, he's got such a following, though. It's, it's amazing. His network has really ex I, exploded in. Uh, and he, like I just said, he just had me back after three years. We did three hours that he's cutting into 20-minute 20 min, 20 segments. And uh, we, were, we, were, we were talking about Putin, no less. So they should be interested. That's valuetainment. But yeah. he's a very, very sharp guy. He's got a very sharp mind. Yeah. 
Yeah, so Patrick Bet David was our first ever guest on the show. Oh, I didn't even know that. Experience. That's great. A whole new experience for us, um, you know, adding another voice to the mix. And it was definitely a good one, thinking back on it. He's an incredible and, 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 you know, you think about it, he brought his listeners to us. He certainly helped us in the beginning. Absolutely. You know, and he, he, he put us on the map. Exactly. Johnny had done and, that one interview with him a few years ago. Patrick. I yeah. like his first name anyway. He's a shop guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hear what else we got. Okay. So I talked to my dad. He's worried. My, you know, I, I said, I, he says, Pat, I'm worried. I said, okay. I said, what are you worried about? He says, what the hell is going on? I said, dad, let me ask you a question. In your, when, when war happened in Iran and we got bombed on by Saddam Hussein, how old were you? He said, I was 44. I said, from the day you were born to 44, had you ever been bombed on before? 167 times in a day. He says, never. I said, when you started getting bombed on, how did you handle it? He said, to the best of my abilities. I said, I watched you as a six-year-old kid. You never cried. My strength and peace came from looking at you, knowing everything was going to be okay. I said, how many times did you think you were going to lose your family, your wife, your kids, when we were getting bombed? And he says, every single second of the day. I said, are we okay today? He said, we're okay today. I said, well... It's me now. I'm 41 years old. I've never been through a pandemic like this before, but I got to handle it the same way. And well, he survived. Yeah. No, Very good point. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the father being the linchpin of the family, you, you uh, depend on, on the father for strength. And yeah. Apparently, uh, Patrick Bet David never forgot that. Yeah. And he, he, he emulated his dad. Good thing. You know the yeah. ironic thing about that? I met his mother and father in Tehran in nineteen seventy-seven. Oh wow! They were good yeah. friends with they were good friends with General Modaba, and when she saw me on near his show, she says, "That's Johnny Russo." He almost fell off the chair. He said, "You know Johnny Russo? Where'd you meet him?" He said he was in Tehran. I, I mean, we had to go through that whole thing. It's crazy. That's rad. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, let's see what else we got from Patrick. And so she showed me all this stuff about brains. I said, let me ask you a question. How much does a personality and a temperament of a kid have to do with when the parents conceive the child? She said, excuse me? I said, let me ask the question <laughs> one more time. How much does the temperament of a child have to do with when mom and dad conceive? What are you asking? Let me explain to you what I'm asking. So think about it if mom and dad conceive the kid at a time when war is happening. You got the juice of fear, anxiety, uncertainty, panic, anger, frustration, all combined together, and boom, you make a baby. That baby's born with fire. That, that, that baby's born with, you know, no wonder you meet all these Middle Easterns, they're such hotheads. Why are, you, why are they such hotheads? They, 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 they're born in a time with war. Well, let's see what's going to happen in uh, Ukraine 20 years from now. We'll see if that uh, that that theory holds water. You're Probably very done. you're very optimistic, Pat. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, no, I said, look, really, let's see. Let, let's see. If, you know, Ukrainians are tough to begin with. And oh now, my God! Yeah. Well, they had the to hell, be. The, the hell that they're living through. These kids uh, are your average six and seven year old kids whining about getting an iPhone. I mean, they're fighting for their lives over there. Yeah. They're going to grow up to be tough adults. 
Well, it's a different world over there, obviously. You've seen the stuff on the news where, you know, you see the people crossing the border and they had a solo kid that was just walking and crying. And then you see the maternity ward getting bombed. And, you know, unfortunately that lady didn't make it, but, you know, there's just, it's all, all bad over there. Oh, man. It's crazy. But, but, but he does have a point. Okay. Who else do we have? All right. Let's, uh, we got a couple more from uh, Patrick. So let's just finish these off. I'm at a restaurant the other day. It's Del Frisco's and the, and the, and the, what do you call it? The, um, the, uh, valet guy stops me. He says, let me ask you a question. I said, yes. Do you really think that story with Gianni at the bathtub happened with Marilyn Monroe? I said, I don't know. Why don't you ask him? I wasn't there. He says, man, because that's a story right there. Can you imagine that? I had another guy. I'm at this place, uh, Mesomayo, uh, 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 and the, and the bar and the waiter comes up and he stops and says, Pat, I don't miss your interviews, but I have watched Gianni five, six times on repeat because I can't just watch it one time. There's too many stories there. Yeah, true. That's great. All right, so that's uh, that's Patrick Bet David, and then we're moving on to Tommy Dreesen, opening for uh, Frank Sinatra until the until the, the, the man died. He was with him the last. Barbara loved him. That's how he got the job. Barbara Sinatra, believe me. What he has to say. You know, I was a bartender before I was ever in show business, and I used to say my buddies in the bar and the South Side of Chicago, you'd serve two drinks and break up a fight, and serve two drinks and break up a fight. But my buddies would go through the three hours when they were drinking. You know, they, 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 they'd be different. Some guys would have a couple of drinks and they'd turn into uh, Rocky Marciano. They want to fight everybody in the joint, you know. Or they'd have a couple of drinks and they'd turn into Rudolph Valentino and they want to bang everybody in the joint, you know. And then they'd, or they'd turn into Rip Van Winkle and it just made them sleepy, you know. But Frank was the first. He, he a couple of drinks and he became Rocky Marciano. Oh, I know. Why the, why the crew liked me to hang out with them? Because I... Both my parents were alcoholic. I was a bartender. I grew up in bars and saloons. I could spot when he was starting to get that way. And I'd quick say, hey, Frank, tell me that story that time about you and Dean when you were doing that charity. And I would switch. I could always get him turned around, you know. Right. But every now and then, every now and then, he would get that, that anger thing. And uh, But I never, I, I remember one fun night. Uh, we had been on the road doing one-nighters all over the country. And now we pulled into Vegas and we were, were at the Desert Inn. And we did two shows that night. And the second show, after the second show, we started hanging out. And I was 4.30 in the morning, and he's going strong. There's like four or five of us at the table. And I got up. I got up, and I started hitting. He said, hey, where are you going? I said, I'm going to bed. He said, what for? I said, I got to get up early in the morning and go to the cemetery and visit those guys. He said, what guys? I said, all those guys who died trying to stay with you every night. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, though. Sinatra hung out, man, until the sun came up. Every day. But he didn't get up until two. Yeah, that's awesome. I love these uh, stories of uh, Frank. Well, you know what? You know what, they always say that, that that people always say to me. You know, he, they were, he was one of a kind. He was he was the first of his kind, and he was the last of his kind. Oh they yeah. Would, oh, they'll like never him. have somebody like him again. <clears throat> no, and it's just it's just not even. It's even hard to explain. You know that that he was larger than life. Yeah. You know, forget about all the. I know we're you're wrapping up your show. I'm sorry. Oh no, but no, please about, go ahead. The greatest pop singer of all time. Forget about that. You know, what a brilliant actor. He won the Academy Award. He never took an acting lesson. One night I'm sitting with Clint Eastwood, with Gregory Peck, with Jack Lemmon, with, with Kirk Douglas, and they're talking film. We're in the back at Frank's compound, and I'm fascinated. These are people I've seen on the film, on movies all my life, and I'm so fascinated with their conversation, but I'm also fascinated with the reverence they're showing to Frank Sinatra. Oh, my These God. Yeah. Learned actors. 
And so I curious, I said, Frank, did you ever study acting? Because I was curious who he studied with. I said, did you ever study acting? And Gregory Peck got my arm hard. He said, ah, acting lessons would have ruined him. He was a diamond in the rough you didn't fool with. Right. This guy danced with Gene Kelly for Christ's sake. He 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 you know, he won the Academy Award for Memory Eternity. He should have won it in The Man with the Golden Armor. How about a movie called Suddenly right. and a, a Manchurian Candidate? Right. He was larger than life and, and, and on top of all that was his connections. And was he with those guys? Was he not with them? Oh I mean, yeah, it's a mystique. Yeah, all the mystique. When Frank Sinatra appeared in Las Vegas, the drop in the pit was enormous. Oh. It was five times more than any other artist that would appear there, the, the, the high rollers. Yep. And, and I'll close with this. He once said in an interview when he was a kid, a young singer, what does it take to become you know, a, a, a star in singing? He said, as a male, he said, that young women want to make love to you. Older women want to mother you. Little kids wish you were their dad. And the guys want to hang out with you. That's right. Most singers, I have three of those qualities, but the guys want to hang out with you. The, all the high rollers in the world would come from, from China. Everywhere. This guy sold out in Japan. He sold out in, in Argentina. He sold out all over the world. 175,000 people came to see him in Brazil. 175,000. You know, the guys wanted to be where Frank was. Oh, and the yeah. high rollers. Anyhow. No, he's amazing. Well, Whiteman. Only one Frank Sinatra, man. We know that. Yeah. Unfortunately, I had the opportunity of 30 years around the guy. Jesus. Uh, he, he plays a, uh, a significant role in Chapter 3 of our new book. Nice. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, What's yeah, that new book coming out? Uh, Christmas. Christmas. Oh, wow. Right around Hello. the corner. Hello. <laughs> Some and it makes a perfect news. stocking stuffer. Oh, yeah. We have resurrected Frank Sinatra. That's rad. Yeah. Are there any... Um, Tales uh, you have, Gianni, about like unreleased uh, Frank uh, songs that you know you could potentially uh, pick up and, and carry on the legacy with. Oh, I have so many because of the fact that he recorded, especially he opened. He had his own label called Reprieve, and uh, they recorded. He just liked to record, so after dinner he'd go to his own studio, and the musicians in L.A. loved to get that phone call. Because they'd be in session from two in the morning to six, and picked up as a lot of money, because that's yeah. when he'd go to bed, and they they were making no money anywhere else at that hour. So, no, he's got so much stuff that's never been released, never. But uh, that that's a good idea, though. Actually, down the road, to do a tribute album of unreleased Sinatra music. Right. Who owns Who owns all that music, Johnny? The kid, the Same. daughters, the two. The, well, this. The son died. The two daughters, Tina, and uh, and um, Jesus, Nancy, Nancy. So would they let you do that? Well, yeah, well, you paid them. Hello, they would love for you to do that. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> they would they would love for me to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's that could be huge. Great idea, Mike. All right, let's see what uh, what else we got here. Yeah, uh, Tom. Uh, aside from your obvious talent, I mean, you've been in this business for fifty years. How much do you think Johnny Carson had to do in your career? There's no, this guy, what, you, what you're about to do, what you say, in 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? You ever been on Johnny Carson? And if you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be one. You might going to be one. But you weren't one now. That show launched. 26 million people watched that show. 
That show yeah. launched. I can name 50 comedians, myself included. That show launched. You know, it, it, when Freddie Prince did one appearance on The Tonight Show, got a sitcom the next day. I did one appearance on The Tonight Show, and I got a, a deal from CBS, a development deal. A guy named Lee Curlin from New York was watching the show from CBS, and he, he signed me to a development deal. I'm in an apartment that I couldn't even hardly pay the rent. I got a wife and three kids the day before that show. The next day, they signed me to a development deal, gave me $10,000 check and $1,850 a month for a year, which was a lot of money in those days. That meant all my rent, my grocery, everything was paid for for a year that I could focus on my comedy career for the first time after being in the business for about seven years. How old were you then at that time? I was 29. Oh, good. In, in, in the, it, was, it was one of the, it's hard to describe that first Tonight Show. You know, first of all, I, I got the Tonight Show. I pestered and pestered them to come and see me, a guy named Craig Tennis. And I finally got on. And that, that when I went there to do it, I got bumped three times. They put you in makeup, take you up to your dressing room, you go down to the green room, you're not out of time. Come back next week. I go back next week, I go in the makeup room, up to the dressing room, down to the green room. We ran out of time. Three times in a row. The fourth time I go there, I go there, they put me in makeup, I go to the green room, I go in the makeup room, in comes Fred de Cordova. He said, fourth time I'm there. He said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie was a great guy. Now you get a lump in your throat about the size of a grapefruit. Now, when it's time to go on, Bert Convy was on that night with uh, Carol Burnett. And when Bert Convy was singing the song, they came and got me out of the green room. They said, you know, you're going on next. Now, they take you down that long walk all the way out of the green room, all the way around to the back curtain on the way there. When you're a veteran on The Tonight Show, as I became later, the stage hands would say, hey, Dreesen, how's your Cubs? How's everybody in Chicago? You know, that kind of variety. But your first time, they see you coming, and they all turn their back on you, and they whisper, it's his first time. It's his first time, you know. <laughs> so, they, so now you go behind that curtain. The coordinator said, are you all right? You say, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then he leaves you alone, and all of a sudden you're going, I, I can't remember the first line. Oh, Oh, God, please don't leave me alone here. You know, you're talking to God on one, you know. And I'm usually a comedy performer. I love stand-up comedy, but there, there 26 million people watching this show. Everybody in our industry watched this show. And my mother had everybody back in the south side. She called <laughs> if I bomb, I can't even go back home. You know? Now, the, the, Doc Severinsen's playing because they're, they're in commercial break, and now the music stops and your heart stops because you're on live. And you hear Johnny say, we're back now. And I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest made his first appearance on The Tonight Show. That one line, I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight. Johnny sets him up. Welcome to You walk out there and it's like you're in an operating room. You can't see the audience and, and, and bright lights in your face. You hit your mark and I start doing my first joke and gets a laugh. Then my second joke, I laugh. Then my third joke. Now I hear Johnny and Ed laughing behind me. Now I'm on a roll. I got about eight applause. I closed. I said, you're in a wonderful audience. Show business is a tough life. If you like me, just if you like me, and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub. Tell them about me. You? <laughs> <laughs> Did you get to sit down? No, I walked through the curtain. Because they told me to go back. I go through the curtain, and the coordinator come running around, Craig Tennis. He said, go back, go back. I said, go back and sit by Johnny. He said, no, don't go sit by Johnny. Just go. So I went back through the curtain, and the audience still applauding. And Johnny did that little, he always go like this. Right. Like this. And and, uh, and, and my, I never, I did 61 appearances on that tiny show, but I never stopped working since. God bless Johnny Carson. I, I thank him every day of my life. No. He's a good man, too. <laughs> wow. All right. Yeah. 
I really liked him as a guest. Yeah. But I, I had a deal with that maniac that um, I don't want to get into it so negative. He got AIDS and he started infecting women deliberately. Oh, the Ray Sharkey. Ray Sharkey. I don't want to mention his name, but uh, Ray yeah. Sharkey. Ah, so what? Yeah. No, Listen, he... <laughs> I talk about De Niro. I know he's your friend. He's an asshole. No and kidding. It has nothing to do with Trump. He's the... a flat out asshole of a human. I'm going to say it. That's all. You don't have to say no. it. I'll say it. No. But he had his tip jar. Hello. You know, his tip thing. And if you didn't tip, he'd come out, right? So he figured Bob Hope was in there. He's saying, I hope Bob Hope comes in. He takes, because guys were giving him 50s, 100. Oh, yeah. You know, these are guys, these are the days when guys went in the bathroom together and locked the door, you know. Hello. And so uh, Bob Hope comes out. He opens his hand. Bob Hope gave him 30 cents. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know if the, our listeners caught that, but that was Steve Sharippa, uh, late of the Sopranos, and he's currently on Blue Bloods. Yeah, I mean, major star. I watched yeah, I watched him from UNLV, University of Nevada. He studied hotel school. He came to work for me at State Street for about a year. What was he, bouncer? Yeah, bouncer and doorman. Yeah. Well, he was there the night I had that incident with Pablo's guy, and and I asked him yeah. to go over to table seven. He said, I ain't going over there. That guy's crazy. <laughs> I said, what do you think I hired you for? <laughs> yeah, it was funny. I forgot how passionate he was about De Niro. Oh, yeah. My God. No, I mean, Obviously, they had some sort of, you know, some happened. Maybe. Had some sort of interaction. Must have taken. Yeah. But for our listeners, this is uh, great research for you to look into these past episodes. They're so entertaining. I thought that was the idea of bringing them out because these kind of performances, you, you don't find them on every podcast in the world, fortunately. Oh, Maron. But I heard they made it a nice club now. Yeah, I think, you know what? I haven't been, but I think that's the one place where you all know, the old, old times Vegas ago. people go. And probably a lot of people from State Street and Jubilation. We go in there now, you probably don't want to see them. No, I, I, I was asked to go because Bob. And they do well. They oh, they do really, music. really well. And the guy, they Bob, who used to own the place up on Sahara, he's the big yeah. partner. He's a nice guy. Yeah. 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 But he yeah. says, you got to come. And I said, hold it. If I come there, I have to bring $10,000 in cash because they all need money. Give me 1000 Give me 500 Give me 1000 Give me 500 <laughs> so uh, There's people there you don't want to see. Oh, no, I know that. Old cocktail waitresses. Oh, my. I'm <laughs> Well, I had I had how many girls working for me, like the Bettys and all those people. Oh, That's what I'm saying. We don't. I, I hope Betty's doing well. We haven't seen <laughs> Betty. <laughs> Remember, she married that young kid, Eric. I'm saying, yes. what to me? She had two she was kids. A lot of fun. She was oh, good. Oh my God, I love Betty. You I'm, guys have like your own Vegas language here. I'm not following yeah. any. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of fun. I love this. Guy. Uh, Megan, Johnny's like Forrest Gump. Oh, I know, right? Gump. He's lived 84 lives. He's like Forrest Gump. That's funny. I found it uh, pretty funny that in episode 78, he mentioned uh, Forrest Gump. And then in episode 79, uh, Nick also mentioned you having a, you know, Forrest Gump like uh, where you just knew everybody and you yeah. were everywhere. Hilarious how many people 
who haven't heard it from each other have made that same comment. Right. Well, just even the shows in succession, you know, relating on that, I, I was like, wait a minute. But it's amazing how many people separately make that. Well, what a compliment to me because, you know, that I love that movie, Forrest Gump, but it was like, you know, it, it, I could see how they could think that, especially now the book is out. I mean, it's so many people come up to him in the street. They said, you're like the Forrest Gump of everything. <laughs> well, you know, you, you not only span mob history and all the uh, important things that happened over the span of over 50 years, but the same thing goes for Hollywood. You were there, too. You saw it. Yeah, it's amazing. So, you know, okay. so that, that, that the Forrest Gump thing is accurate. I had, I had great privileges, fortunately. Yeah. And luckily, he didn't have to deal with Jenai, so that was good. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who do we have next? Yeah. Right, okay, let's listen to uh, Paul Anka. Yeah. Go, Paul. Do your thing. You know, I, I was I was doing a TV special in England, and uh, I said, "Well, we need a comedy relief." And they started sending me these kinescopes of comics, and I saw this one comic named Johnny Carson, and he did a routine where he drank all night till about six in the morning got blitzed, and then he went on television to do a kiddie show. And it was a very funny bit. So he says, wow, that guy's cool. So he came over, we did the show, got to know him a little. Nobody really got to know Johnny that much. And then we came back to New York, I ran into him again. And uh, I said, what are you up to, Johnny? He says, well, I've got this show, I need some work. I'm going to do this show called The Tonight Show. I'll do it for about a year or two. Ha, ha, ha. And uh, <laughs> he said... Uh, I'm looking for a theme song. So, you know, you're talking to the right guy with me. So I sent him this demo. Of da -da 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 -ba -da -ba -ba -da and uh, he called me back a week later. He said, geez, I'm so sorry, Paul, but Skitch Anderson said he doesn't want any kid taking over his gig. He's going to write it. I says, Johnny, geez, sorry to hear that. I says, but Johnny, if you change your mind, I'll give you half the publishing and half the royalties. Think about it. <laughs> but he thought about it for about 24 hours. You know the rest of the story. It went on to be the longest-running TV theme ever, right? He didn't know. I didn't know a damn thing. I just write the music. And there we are years later putting our kids through school on this silly little... Da, 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 da. You know that song? That song made him $375 a night. Oh, wow. That's what he got from the, from the union. A oh, night silence. for playing that jingle. Yeah. That's why he's so rich. He he did the United Airlines up, up, and away. They're all his jingles. Oh, Jesus. Paul Anker is amazing, amazing, a good friend, but an amazing writer. And uh, his his catalog, I don't know what it's worth, because he's he been writing his own songs since he's 15. Yeah, I, I thought that was like an original composition from uh, the Tonight Show Band. I didn't realize that there were external writers that were putting all this together behind the scenes. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Who got uh, next? Uh, we got a few from Paul, so let's uh, jump around here to the short ones here. I had a big beef with him. When I was having my parties at my house yeah. on Las Vegas Country Club every yeah. Monday night, he was performing at the Sahara simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And he came to the guard gate around 11, 12 o'clock at night. And they said, Johnny Carson's here. I said, yeah, and I hung up on him. So they called me back. They said, Mr. Carson is here. I said, you stop telling me this. He said, he put him on the phone. I said, you do a great Johnny Carson. 
you should do it for some day. And I hung up on him. I never did Johnny Carson show for that reason. <laughs> no, I used to have these parties every Monday night at my house. But I didn't know the guy was coming over. Nobody invited him. I saw somebody was trying to crash. Yeah. It, was, it was really him. I never did Johnny Carson show. <laughs> I did 23 Merv Griff, and I did all those people that were doing them at the time, but never his show. Did you Oops. have stress? Oh, my God. He's a, he's a tough, he holds a grudge, let me just tell you that. Well, really? we, had his, we had his lawyer on, remember? Bushkin. Fantastic Bushkin. Yep. Yeah, Henry Bushkin. No. Let's, let's go to Chaz Palminteri. He's a good friend. All right. Let's Rock take a listen to what Chaz has to say. In all the all the writings that you've done, I mean, obviously Bronxdale, and I mean yeah. that that I mean, whoever thought when you wrote that that look at that legacy, what's that been for you? Well, that's been you know, I wrote it, I wrote that thirty years ago, and I wrote it after I got fired. I was working, I ran out of money. I was guest starring on some shows, then I finally I ran out of that money, and I started working as the bouncer as a doorman. Because I used to box, you know, and I said, all right, I can handle myself. Let me get a job doing this, working. And I worked at a door in this club called uh, 2020 in Beverly Hills. Oh, wow. Over there. Yeah. you. Remember, I worked there. I was in L.A. And I worked there. And uh, all of a sudden, one night, I was there for three months. I was supplementing my acting. And I was working there. For, I was working there. And all of a sudden, this one guy comes over to me, Johnny. And he goes, and he goes, let me in right away. And he was really nasty to me. And I said, I said, excuse me, wait a minute, are you on the list? He goes, he goes, my, I'm not on the list. He goes, I, he goes, don't you know who I am? And when a guy says that to me, I always say, yeah, you're the guy who's not getting in tonight. He's <laughs> <laughs> a real asshole, you know? Right, I and love it. Finally, I wouldn't let him in. And then uh, he made such a fuss that the owner came out. He was yelling. The owner came out, and who was it? It was Swifty Lazar. Oh, my God. Man. Swifty Lazar was the biggest agent in the world. I know. know he had his party every year, his, his Oscar yeah, party. And that was his party, and I wasn't letting him in. Oh, and my God. Oh, that's funny. Okay? And then he said, you'll be fired in 15 minutes. And you know what? I got fired in 15 minutes, just like he said. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah, one thing about <laughs> him. Swifty Lazar was a legend. In the wrong person. Yeah, you know, apparently what I'm getting out of all these interviews if you want to be successful in show business, you either have to be a bartender, a bouncer, or a doorman. Well, yeah, right. they, they kept those jaws at night so they didn't go on interviews during the day. Are you listening to this, Megan? You're going to have to do one of these jobs. No. <laughs> She's, she already passed them all already. She's in production already. <laughs> I keep my boat in Spain. And I, I leave it at the Carlton Hotel all the time. And they, they rent it out. They get me like 30000 a week for it. And uh, I'm sitting there. And, and in small print, I'm allowed to board my boat if I'm there. Not to, you know, just to board it. It's my boat. And my crew runs it. And you'll love this story, Chess. <laughs> so I get on the boat. And there is, is Harvey Weinstein. Oh. And he comes over to me. And he says, uh. You're Johnny Russo. I said, yeah. He said, well, you're not on my list. I said, I know that. He said, well, get off my boat. I said, what'd you just say? He says, get off my boat. I said, no, I'm supposed to say that. He said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, this is my boat. Now get off my boat. So he called the, the, the captain over, and the captain said, I'm sorry, Mr. Russo wants you off his boat. We threw him off, and he paid 18000 for the party. <laughs> uh, do I love that stuff? Yeah, that's rad.
That's probably one of my favorite things that you've ever done. Yeah, <laughs> oh, me too. With Harvey Weinstein, yep. That yep. might be, that's up there on the list of yep. my favorite accomplishments by you. Yes, I, I yeah. felt that way too. Believe me, I still do. I'm sure. Put that on your resume. I hope so. Yeah, no, that's good. I heard that. I'm just like, wow, that's, that's a good. gem right there. Got to bring that one back. Yeah, let's go to Frankie <laughs> Valley. He's All right. a good, good friend. So, sorry, before we go there, we still have some time. Um, just reflecting on having these wonderful guests. Chaz, I'm sure it's in one of the clips that Mike had pulled aside, but obviously the his story of Bronx Tale, which was such a huge part of his successful career, started out as a one-man show. And since we did this interview with him, I actually saw him perform that one-man show. Oh, wow. He revived it and brought it back to small stages. And I saw it at a small theater in Jersey and we were front row and saw him perform the original A Bronx Tale one-man show and it was incredible. He's amazing how he becomes that little kid even in front of you. So, so good. Just to remember all of that and to perform, you know, something so long and just, it's one, you know, hour-long monologue. It was incredible. So that was a thing that I did after we spoke with him, which was cool. I'm glad you brought that up to our, our audiences because he is a good friend and he's still performing. So anybody listening yep. to this, Megan's sure endorsing that you should go see it. Yeah, I've seen him post on Instagram a few times about this one man show. So it's an it's an amazing thing. If you love the movie play, you got to see the uh, the origin of the story. It was great. Right. And and then another good friend of ours I just passed through, Danny Aiello. Oh, Danny. Um, and yeah. and he it's funny you should say that you he he was a doorman while he was a UPS guy. Yes. For Joe Denti. That's, up at the Columbus Club. Long. That's how long I know him. Jesus. Wow. He, that and, is a real long time. And Joe Pesci was a waiter. Did oh, you imagine God. that? He was a waiter for Joe Denti. And that's when he became a star. He basically went to California and, and drove Joe nuts because he had Joe rent Charo's house. He's right. having Sunday dinners and he thinks he's going to organize Beverly Hills. Like, <laughs> I was laughing. I kept getting phone calls from every every Joe Cortese, every actor out there. You better come. I said, "What do you mean better?" The guys, I mean, well, you know, he, I said, "I don't care who he is." And they didn't know what I was doing. I was I was a bigger earner than anybody in New York City for a different reason. So I was laughing. I shot two of his guys in, in Beverly Hills and got away with it. In fact, two of them two of them are in still still in prison. Oh, Joe's guys? Yeah. They came. They tried to take. He, first of all, he took my table at, uh, at Nikki Blair's. He wanted that table. So after two or three years, and for the Byronists who don't know, Nikki Blair's was the place to be in I Beverly see. Hills. And so I knew Nikki 100 years because I met him on the set of Lepke because he and Tony Curtis drove out to Hollywood together. Right. And so, uh, and I played Albert Anastasia, and Tony Curtis played Louis Lepke. So he was on the set every day. So long story short, he said, Johnny, I know you're here three nights a week, but I got to give this guy this table. So I called New York. I said, who's this guy, Joe Dante? He said, oh, he's around some people. But he made him sound like he was Don Cheech. I mean, the guy, you know, he was okay, but he wasn't of the, you know, higher excellent. <laughs> but... And then he had these two kids bothering me. So I'm in a restaurant, and they come in the restaurant. I'm there with my grandmother, 
my wife and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very high-end family. And these two kids come and said, you know, Mr. Denty wants to see you now. I said, are you kidding me? I said, I'm having dinner with my family. Tell Mr. Denty I'll call him tomorrow. He said, no, you're coming with us now. So now the maitre d' knew me. He said, John, you have a problem? I said, no, no, I'll handle it. So I said, Grandma, I'll be right back. Because I always carry. I had a, a CCW, Beverly Hills, New York. Yeah. I got them everywhere. So we're walking. It was a long corridor going out to the club. And I shot both of them. But I even taking the guns out of my pants. I shot them in the legs. <laughs> These two guys are crawling a cannon drive. <laughs> And they had my Bentley in front, so I told the driver, I said, here, this is for you. Call the cops on these guys. I call my, I call my wife's cell phone. I said, put grandma on the phone. I said, I'm going to have the cops come. She said, um, was those loud sounds come from you? I said, yeah, grandma, I just shot two guys. She said, I thought so. <laughs> my grandmother was married to the chief of detectives in San Francisco. I said, we ought to write a book. Yeah, why don't we? Uh, something to think about. Maybe Let's we should put that, put that, that in the book. Did we put that in our book? Uh, that, yeah, yeah, we did. Oh, we didn't elaborate on it. Yeah. Anyway. How did you shoot them without pulling the gun out? I it, shot them right through my pants to their knees. You pulled in your pants? I, had, I did. What do I care? A pair of pants, a little bullet hole. I had them woven. <laughs> They had me by each arm, and I had my hands in my pocket. They didn't realize. Oh, I okay. Oh, that makes sense. See, they had me on each arm walking to me in my car. I just wanted to get him out of the out of the restaurant. My friend owned it. I want to wreck his. He had a whole crowd. Yeah. So I what shot him of, out the, on the way to my car, and in, in their legs, they were crying. I mean, you get shot in, in the leg above the knees. Forget about it. You mean? Oh, it hurts. Uh, what, yeah. what kind of piece was this? Like a Saturday Night Special or? No, 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 no. I no. I carried. I had these Remingtons, twenty-five longs, revolvers. I never would use uh, an automatic. They stovepiped on me once. Yeah. And uh, I use revolvers, five-shot revolvers, small ones. Nice. Got solid. Always gold. reliable. Yeah. Very reliable. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Anyway. Watch. Moving right along. Moving forward. All right, let's see what the good old Frankie Valley has got to say. We've got a three-minute clip here. Something that, you know, I, I, will, I would advise all kids to have something more that they can fall back to. You know what I mean? Uh, when I, before I even had any major success, uh, I had a, a regional success. And I did the Ed Sullivan show three times with a group called The Four Lovers. And then we had a cold period. And I went to school to become a hairdresser. That's what, you know, I, I said. You and I both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I said, I, I have to do something. What, what? And I, I didn't want to do something. You know, I, I had no interest in... in, in becoming a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or any of that. My whole as a kid was mainly I wanted to be a singer. I was about six years old. My mother took me to New York to the Paramount Theater. I saw Sinatra. There you go. Right then. So nothing else was important. I left high school uh, right 
at, at, at my last year and when I forged straight ahead, I said, if ever I'm going to make it at something, I'm going to have to put full concentration on what I'm doing. And that's, so I also learned from doing demos for publishers and stuff like that, how important publishing really was. So when I hooked up with Bob Gordio, who's been my partner for over 50 years on a handshake, uh, that's what we did. I was interested in owning masters and being in the publishing business. This wasn't, I wasn't on an ego trip and wanted to be a big star and, and somebody waiting on me hand and foot all the time. I knew that there, everything that goes up comes down. The way to really sustain yourself was to build something that worked for you when you weren't working so that you could earn that way. So that's what I did. So that was the right thing for me. I think whatever you want to be, whether you want to be a doctor, a lawyer, a chemist, a mathematician, you need to concentrate on, on that thing It's and really refine it to the point where you're that good at it, as opposed to being a jack of all trades and master of none. Very true. No, yeah. No, I mean, he's such a nice guy. I mean, it was it's, it's amazing. The career he's had still. He's still performing. I bought his latest album. 86 years of age. That's impressive. He was just, he yeah, was he, just here he, at the, in New York well, City. He always, he always wanted to sing jazz, and he figured this would be his last album. It's Frankie Valley Sings Jazz, catchy title. But hmm. uh, I, I bought it, and uh, he still has it at that age. Oh, no, yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. He's an amazing guy, too, and a good friend. I've known him for years and years and years. Speaking of playing live, Gianni, do you have any shows, uh, live shows? Are you still doing that? or I, I just booked Resorts International for Columbus Day weekend. For nice. Columbus Day weekend, October. I'm doing a live show, yeah. No, we got really? a lot of stuff happening, but yeah, I'm, look, I'm actually interested in doing this again because that show that I'm doing that night is based on our book. I did it in Niagara Falls with you March 7th, just before the pandemic two years ago. Wow. So now they're starting to rebook it. So I got a lot of good, good things going on. Uh, in fact, I was on the phone this morning with Tom Cantone, who is the entertainment director for nine hotels. So he wow. said, are you ready? I said, I'm ready. So... <laughs> He's another one of our past guests. Yeah, it was a, and they're 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 opening a billion six casino this year in in Greece. Oh whoa! So I'm going over there, which should be fun. No, but it's uh, but the guy I'd like to close the show with, who's been a friend and a guest, came into Pat and my life again this week by optioning our book to actually make a movie out of it, and he's got the money. George Gallo, we all know him from Midnight Run, Bad Boys, 29th Street. He knows the genre. He's got Bad Boys 4 coming out. He's got uh, two films with De Niro coming out. 
He's hotter than hell. And they asked him, what do you want to make? He said, I want to make Johnny Russo's story, Hollywood Godfather. And nice. They, they, Jeffrey Dash inked a deal last night with him. So we've got, we got a lot of good things coming. And, and George has been a friend of mine for many, many years. So uh, what, do we have any clips on him? Oh, yeah. Let's check him out. When we were shooting Midnight Run, Farina was a part of this. Um, there were a couple of, I guess, mob guys hanging out on the set or associate members. I don't know. But they were definitely connected guys and Farina. And they were all laughing because I think he arrested one of them. <laughs> and and but now they were all friends, you know. They were laughing and telling stories, you know. And uh, I was on the. Uh, I remember it was like the first cell phone. It was 1987. Wow. And it was about you know it was like, you know, the size of it was like this big, you know. Oh yeah, one of those blocks. Yeah, it had an antenna, you know, and, and uh, my mother and father they were still alive, and uh, my father lived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And uh, I said, Dad, you sound upset. And uh, he said, yeah, we got robbed. He said, two guys came into the house and they robbed us. What? Yeah. And he said, they took all of mommy's jewelry and they took all, you know, they took all of my things and blah, blah, blah. And I had some cash in the house. They took all of it. So I, I, I was right on the phone. I was, they could hear the conversation. And one of the connected guys said, wait a minute. He says, so he, he said, let me talk to your father. So I went, Dad, I'm with this guy, I don't whatever his name was. I handed the phone to my dad. And the guy says to my father, he says, where are you right now? He says, I'm in Fort Lauderdale. He says, describe each piece of jewelry. And my father describes everything. And he says, all right, give me an hour. And he hung <laughs> up. <laughs> this is an amazing story. So about a day later, a guy comes to my parents' house with a box with all the jewelry, most of the money, my dad's watch, his ring, everything, because they took everything. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and he came to the door and says, look, we found it. He said, obviously, don't ask how we found it, and I want you to know the two men that took it are terribly sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, love that. No, nice way to close it out. Yep, perfect. Well, for our listeners, this was for you as as a gift for being so loyal to us. And um, I'm happy that Mike was able to join us because he's been the backbone of the show and, and all the technical stuff. And all of us have enjoyed the three years we've spent together. As you know, we're still going strong, and that's because of you and all your support. So, I mean, I think all of us should... Say a little something to our fans personally, if you'd like. And it's three years. God bless you from me, Johnny Russo. Pat, what do you well, want to you say? Well, you know, this is what I've been saying uh, all along. Uh, without our, our listeners, who are we? And as time has gone on, a listener base has increased, which is a, a testimony, you know, to the show, but more so to the people who uh, are talking about it. It's all word of mouth. We're not doing any advertising for this. And, uh, you know, we have to thank the listeners. Thank you. Megan? To begin going into our fourth year, you know, what is it, Pat, our ninth season? I mean, Mike? About, uh, we're, I don't even know. We're out there. I believe it's our ninth season, um, if I'm correct. And it's incredible to have gone this far and have so many loyal listeners and people who 
are still interested, still have questions, um, you know, it's very fun to be a part of. And yeah, it's been it's been a good three years. And I've been kind of excited to see all you guys just evolve. You know, Johnny, he's he's been doing this for years and he knows what's going on. Patrick, you've come into your own and you know, you've definitely stepped up. Megan, you were in behind behind the scenes for the first few seasons and then you started, you know, coming out of your shell and definitely becoming more of a uh, you know participant of the show. Yeah. yeah. And it's been a learning experience for all of us, you know. Yeah. That's been great. In, in a new a new thing we've learned, you know, a new way of doing things almost each and every show. So we're always progressing forward. So it's been a very great experience. Absolutely. But we want okay. more mail. Keep sending the mail and suggestions for shows, guests you want to hear, anything you want. Just let us know and we'll try to do it. God bless yep. you all. Stay safe and healthy. And biddy, biddy, biddy. That's all, folks. Good <laughs> night, everybody. Good night, guys. Thanks, Mike, for your Thank you, Mike Austin. Mike hey, Austin. All good. Thank you. Until next week. All right. Signing nice. off. If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you. So warm, so tender, call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself, Megan Horan, with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com, which is where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather and on Facebook as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your messages. Good night. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be around. I'll be around.